2: Cambridge, Massachusetts, June 1976. A busy, crowded city at home of Harvard University. The city council is about to take action that will stunt the world of science. It asks Harvard not to begin a new type of research until the council has decided whether or not to ban it completely. The research plan for this laboratory involves the engineering of genes.
3: In only half a century, genetic engineering has gone from idea to reality. Yet, as huge leaps in technology have been made from mapping the genome to the invention of CRISPR, the ethical debate still rumbles on. Does gene editing hold the promise of a blissful future with no infertility or cancer or starvation?
1: Today, agriculture
2: is going far beyond nature to produce new miracles for an even
0: better, more abundant life.
3: Or are we hurtling towards some kind of dystopian society ruled by a class of genetically engineered superhumans? Anything could come up. In fact, they don't even know what's going to eventually come out of this experimentation. It could be anything. It
1: could be um, uh, contamination, infections, something that could crawl out of the laboratory such as a Frankenstein.
3: The central debate around how far we should go with this technology remains unresolved. So today on Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit, we look back to look forward. I'm Dallas Campbell and I am joined by my good friend geneticist Adam Rutherford to track how we got to where gene editing is today and to discuss what the future holds. Uh, Today's episode contains some swearing. So I apologise in advance. I'm sure you won't mind. Welcome to the show, Adam Rutherford. Hello, Dallas Campbell. It's nice to see you, actually. Congratulations on the new book. Which I am going to be really honest. I confess, I'm a book behind you at the moment because you you are too prolific as a writer. I can only apologise for that. Yes, could you slow down a bit? Because I'm still on Rutherford and Fry Everything, Abridged. Well, I've finished that, but I do have your book, Control.
2: Well, I sort of oscillate between writing books that are about the worst things in the universe and the the absolute worst behaviours of humankind and ones which are quite jolly. I've read them all, apart from
3: the last one, because it's in my pile of books to read. And I still get confused about genetics. What's wrong
2: with my brain? Well, possibly what's wrong with my explanations, if you've read my... No, no,
3: no, no, you're... Actually, we're going to talk about... You've got a really lovely explanation, which we're going to drill into, which is your of parallels between gene editing or genetic engineering and and
2: hip-hop. It's an analogy that I think is useful. There's an inherent paradox in doing biology specifically about humans and particularly human genetics, which is that what we discovered in the late 20th century and the early 21st century is that the genome is the actual most complex, richest data sets in the universe as far as we're aware. And there's more data in one single human cell than in any other storage mechanism that we've ever either designed or come across.
3: But presumably other animals too have huge data. Data sets in their cells?
2: Well, very valid question. In terms of the nature of the information held within DNA, we're indistinguishable from any other animal that also, or any other organism that also has DNA. But in terms of it being part of the expression of the human condition, which I think is, we can legitimately say that we are a special animal in the sense that we're doing this right now. There are other animals podcasting, (laughs) (laughs) perhaps. And in, in that case, the relationship between our lived lives and genetics means that I think it's a legitimate claim that our genomes are the richest and densest source of information that we've come across. And yet the paradox is these are our lived lives. And so we carry with us all of this sort of social and cultural and historical baggage, which makes us think that we can understand ourselves in a simplistic way.
3: I understand myself in a very simplistic way.
2: (laughs) Why don't we start with the kind of origins and key
3: milestones of genetics? Darwin, your great hero, our great hero, the greatest intellectual mind, maybe, you would argue probably yes.
2: I can justify this position by saying that Darwin repositioned not just the whole of life on Earth as being evolved and gave us a mechanism by which we could understand the radiation of life on Earth for the last four billion years. He also repositioned us on that on that tree and gave us a mechanism by which we understand our own existence on the only living planets that we are currently aware of so while the fundamentals of physics have been explored and within you know incredible power by einstein and isaac newton and the faradays and the physicists and 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 i'm not disparaging their contribution to our understanding of the universe we cannot do any of that understanding without putting ourselves into that picture. And we can only understand our own trajectory in the history of the universe in the context of evolution. So the truths revealed by the great physicists are only revealed under the auspices of biology. So that puts Darwin above them.
3: There's that famous quotation, I forget who it's by, that nothing in biology makes sense except within the lens of evil or the light of evolution or something.
2: Exactly. Perfect. Except in the light of evolution. That's Theodosius Dobzhansky, the great 20th century evolutionary biologist and it's true it's absolutely true it baffles me that we don't put evolutionary genetics at the base of where we start learning about biology rather than as a sort of add-on towards the end but we have to say that Darwin was not a geneticist. He was not. He, in fact, the concept of the gene was alluded to after 1859, after the origin of species. The word gene doesn't get coined until the beginning of the 20th century. The notion that units of information are encoded somehow in our biology and are passed from generation to generation began to emerge out in the late Victorian era. And it's the rediscovery of Mendel's laws. Mendel, the Moravian scientist, who was also a monk, had been pottering away at exactly the same time that Darwin was writing The Origin of Species, and he worked out that with his pea plant experiments that we learn about at GCSE, that there are these units, biological units that are passed from generation to generation that contain information about the colour of the petals or the wrinkliness of a pea. And they're inherited in discrete ways. They're not just blended. We're not a blend of our parents. There are individual units which are expressed in specific patterns. We only know that because they're expressed because we can analyse this using statistics. I mean people had known about
3: this for a long time given that we'd been breeding dogs and presumably at the beginnings of agriculture sort of relies on the fact that we start to understand how hereditary processes work even though we didn't know what
2: genes were. Is that right? It is but the notion that there were genes and the sort of concept of the gene really doesn't necessarily figure into agriculture or selective breeding in a sort of very meaningful way until the 19th century. This sounds like I'm criticising them. I'm not. They were just working out what the rules were, and they're not really discovered until the 20th century. But even Darwin, after the origin of species, was not right about the mechanism of inheritance and, and adopted much more of a sort of Lamarckian view, which is that characteristics could be acquired during life and then passed on. A poorly covered area of the history of biology is the late 19th century, when after Darwin has worked out natural selection and published it. That doesn't tie in to how heredity actually works until about the 1890s. And it's August Weissman who really comes up with the model of the germplasm, which is that sperm and egg are the carriers of the genetic information, and the rest of our bodies are just, you know, shells.
3: Lamarckism, for those who don't know, and I don't really... I always think of giraffe necks. He would look at a giraffe and go, well, the leaves were on the higher branch, therefore giraffes have got longer necks.
2: Well, something like that, isn't it? Yeah, that's roughly right. I mean, that's the example we often use. It's the inheritance of acquired traits or acquired characteristics that is what Lamarck proposed. It talks to something which I think reveals the complexity of genetics, which is that we have a biological mechanism of inheritance, which we now have a good understanding of via genetics, Uh, although there's huge bits that we don't understand at all. But also we inherit stuff from our environment, right? So there are non-biological Things that we inherit. We inherit behaviors and characteristics, cultural transmission from our family, from our friends, and from the environment. So, when Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, who I've written about a lot over the years, he's the guy who comes up with the phrase nature versus nurture. And that's what he's talking about there. He's talking about nature meaning genetics, although they didn't have genetics when he came up with it, but innate, the innate biology that is passed from parent to child. And the environmental, that's the nurture bit of it, which is the stuff that we inherit, which is not inherited in a biological way. And we've sort of expanded on that idea into the 21st century and we talk about the genetic and the non-genetic environment. The genetic environment is our DNA. The non-genetic environment is everything else in the entire universe. And those two things are, they work in concert, and they don't work versus each other, which is how he formulated it. Matt Ridley, the science writer, came up with a better phrase, which is nature via nurture, which is that the script of our life is performed as a play or as a film. And the script are the words on the page or the notes on a musical score, and the performance is everything else. Now, if you think that the script is really super important to a good film you can't make a good film out of a bad script right the dna is your script but your lived life is a performance which is determined by everything else that is expressed through your existence which includes the social and the environmental and the cultural and the historical and all of that stuff that remains the biggest question in human biology what is the relationship between those two things is it the sort of
3: nineteen fifties? I suppose when we discovered the double helix, was that the moment? That we right, we have a first foothold on the ladder of understanding genetics properly.
2: No, it happens before that. That was—I'll uh, talk about that in a minute. I mean, that is a, definitely a really important moment in the history of biology. But in the twenties and thirties and forties, uh, there's some really significant advances happening that do a number of things it gets referred to as the modern synthesis because biologists are absolutely shocking at naming things but it was the fusion of mendel's laws of of inheritance how individual units of information are transmitted from generation to generation with the darwinian ideas of natural selection that they were fused mostly at UCL and Cambridge and a couple of other places around the world they were fused into this idea that now we have the actual not just the mechanism of how evolution works but the units of how they change in populations and in individuals over time. So they're still, their genes now, we're talking about genes now, but we don't really know what genes are, and we don't really know what the actual physical thing in our cells, which is being transmitted. So there were lots of ideas about it being proteins or something else. DNA was being identified by this point, and people were suggesting that DNA was the hereditary information. That was demonstrated in a couple of classic experiments in the 1940s, But still, the reason that Crick and Watson and Franklin's work was so important was because they showed that the molecule DNA actually had this self-copying mechanism in it.
3: So people knew about the chemical, the DNA, and they knew that had something to do with hereditary things.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it had been demonstrated by Avery, Oswald Avery, in the 1940s that DNA was the bit that was important. The reason that the structure was essential. The reason that that classic paper by Crick and Watson, heavily based drawing on the work of Rosalind Franklin, such an important landmark, was that they described this structure, this physical structure, the double helix, you know, a beautiful, iconic structure. And within that structure is the mechanism by which both information can be held and that copying can take place. So the reason it's a double helix is because the rungs of the ladder between the two strands, and they're complementary to each other. So Every time on one strand you get the letter A, on the other strand you get the letter T. Every time you get the letter C, you get the letter G on the other strand, the four letters of the genetic alphabet. So what that means is you split the ladder in half, and so you've only got A's and T's and C's and G's on one side, but you know that the equivalent is going to be the complementary pairing. So if you've got an A on this side, then you know that there should be a T on this side. So if you take your double helix, rip it in two, unzip it, separate them, then you can replace the missing strand and you have exactly the same information as you did from the starting one in two separate cells, right? So there you have the way that information can be transmitted from one cell to the next cell. And that, that's the key point about that study.
3: Okay, so it's 1953. We underst- we, well, we have a basic understanding of the hereditary processes. We've got the double helix. We've done that. Let's talk about genetic engineering. At what point does that start where we go, holy crap, we understand this now. We can
2: actually get a pair of scissors to things and start chopping it up and start doing what we want. So there's a step in between those two, which is essential. And this was led by Francis Crick and others, but not Watson had extracted himself from this process. This happens over the course of the 60s. There isn't really a moment when this happens. And it is the solving of the genetic code. So not just that the double helix is the molecule that carries the hereditary information and can be replicated over generations and the same information transmitted from cell to cell. The next mystery was, how does the actual code work, right? So we've got all these letters in the rungs. They can duplicate themselves in cells. But how does that turn into information? And that was a project that led... Well, it was led by a number of people. The classic experiment by Matt and Nirenberg. And Crick spotted this at a meeting in Russia, where about 14 people were present... And he was sitting there and went up to him at the end and said, I think this is the most important thing that's happened for the last 20 years in science. I need you to represent this tomorrow to a bunch more people. And he did. And it was the, basically the way, it was the first step to understanding how the genetic, let, the letters A, T, C and G that I mentioned earlier, get translated into meaningful biological processes.
3: So Crick and Watson, we don't have that process. We don't, we understand double helixes. We understand those bases, but we don't understand
2: how you go from there to biology. exactly. Exactly. So DNA is just a code. It doesn't do anything. All it does is transmit information. How that information gets turned into working biology was the next big step. And some some of the basics are DNA works as a code and it encodes amino acids. And amino acids make up proteins and proteins do all the work in the whole of biology. So all life is either made by proteins or of proteins, right? So the key step is how you get from DNA as a piece of information to proteins, which is the stuff that makes hair and muscle tissue and flesh and eyes and, you know, the hardware. And Crick was part of the... He sort of led many different teams that solved this process by understanding that DNA itself, in little chunks, encodes amino acids, specific amino acids, the total of which is 20 that are used in biology to make up all the proteins that all life is made by or of. So that happens during the 60s. Now, that brings us into the era of genetic engineering because the key thing about those four landmarks, so Darwin getting natural selection, the modern synthesis understanding the mechanism of evolution is via genes, via genetics, 53, Realising that the DNA works in this particular way for storing it, passing information down the generations. And then the solving of the genetic code, which is this how DNA turns into proteins, how turns into working biology. They're the four landmarks. I refer to them as landmarks is because they're universal, right? There isn't a living system that we've discovered on Earth that doesn't use those mechanisms. And as soon as they worked out that it was universal, that we have the same genetic code as a chimpanzee or an elephant or a bacteria or a blue whale, what it meant was that these codes are interchangeable. So it's the same coding system. Was there a
3: moment with those four tenets of of understanding where somebody went, I know what we can do. Now we understand this. We can start to fiddle around and start to chop it up and start to design organisms or change things or make things how we would like?
2: Basically, yes. And that happens at the beginning of the 1970s. And various teams were beginning to think like this. But the real breakthrough came in 72 and then published uh, in 73, which was led by a guy called Paul Berg and his team. He wasn't working alone because scientists almost never do. Are we getting into the hip hop world now? Yeah, sort of. This is is the (laughs) analogy that, that I love talking about. So... The reason I started thinking about music as an analogy for telling these stories is that, as we alluded to at the beginning, biology is really complicated and it's slightly abstract because we're talking about things that we can't see but we infer from statistics or we need to look at under microscopes. And incidentally, things like the double helix, that iconic structure... DNA is almost never like that. It's mostly just a messy blob. It, you know, beautiful... I like to think I'm composed
3: of beautiful helixes and nice
2: colours. And... No, I mean, it's, it's it's a really dynamic thing that's constantly unwinding, winding up again, being switched on and off, and rearranging itself almost constantly. And and when you extract it, it looks like snot, right? So that beautiful diagram that comes in that first paper, which was drawn by Francis Crick's wife, Odile, who is a graphic designer, It's so iconic and so beautiful and it's so landed in the public consciousness. It's not a lie, but it's certainly not how things are. In the same way that the the atom, the picture of the atom, atoms don't look like that. We don't know what atoms look like. It's a useful model for understanding how atoms work. Exactly. So
3: there's a historical link between hip hop. I mean, a timing link in terms of when genetic engineering started properly and when hip hop started.
2: I was thinking about using music to describe evolution because I spoke to a few musicologists and asked them the question, is there any music that isn't descended from what has come before? And I was using that because that's how biology works, right? Evolution works. There there are no de novo forms of life. I spoke to six musicologists. Five of them said no, there isn't. And one of them said there was a French band in the 1940s where this was their exactly what they tried to do. They tried to create music that had no antecedents. It's a fun game to play because you say, well, you know, could the Stone Roses exist in a world where the Beatles didn't exist, right? Or could the Beatles exist in a world where blues didn't exist? And then you say, well, could... Blues exist in a world where jazz didn't exist, or you can do it in the classical era. The influences which are either direct or subtle or inferred between any musical form. The same musicologist who's a guy who works in Berkeley and is a Beethoven expert. He said, apart from this one French band for whom this was their, their raison d'etre, and then he said, but they were shit. I'm willing to park them. And so <laughs> There's a series of videos online by a guy called Kirby Ferguson, which have profoundly influenced my thinking on this. And subsequently, I've contributed to some of his work, just in in sort of ideas form, which they're called Everything is a Remix. And they're the notion that all things, both biological and cultural, are derived from things that came before, and that we take elements of existing works and we smush them together and we remix them and we add our own contributions. And yet... The word that we use to describe these is, is almost always used in a disparaging way, which is to copy, right? Whereas actually the elements of creativity are copying and remixing. So listening to that and thinking about music, I was thinking, well, that's evolution, right? That is how evolution works. We take a thing that emerged 4 billion years ago and has a genetics, has genes involved in it, and every cell copies exactly what has come before but slightly changes it. descent with modification, the central idea in Darwinian evolution. And with that, it is the most powerful thing that has ever existed. The line that I quote in the new book, which is from Jurassic Park, and no one's noticed it yet, is genetics is the most powerful force that has ever existed, and yet we treat it like a kid that found its dad's gun.
3: And I suppose hip hop specifically is the very much the embodiment of that, because it is taking literal pieces of music that were before and repackaging them and reprocessing them and adding them and
2: scrunching them up and sticking them in. Now, I'm going to ask you a question which I'm pretty confident you're going to get right, because I know you. So when I was thinking about this, the reason hip hop became important in this story for me was because I'm a big hip hop fan, because obviously I'm a white public school boy from the east of England and we know a lot about, but... What Paul Berg did in that first genetic engineering experiment was do something that evolution hadn't done, which was to take elements from two different organisms and physically transfer one to the other. Rather than it being derived from what had come before, he took a gene from one virus, physically removed it and transferred it into another virus.
3: But what's the difference between that and something like grafting a bit of apple
2: tree onto a rootstock? Presumably that, that idea has existed forever. It kind of has. It's more that this is done at a molecular level. So the units of inheritance that we rely on in evolution, it's the first time that you're taking the basic information nodule and switching it from one organism. Yeah. I,
3: I'm just trying to imagine this. How did Paul Berg, looking at some snot through a microscope,
2: so, like how did he do it? Yeah, it is a very sharp scalpel, and they're called restriction enzymes. So they exist in bacteria, and what they do is they're little enzymes, so proteins that have a particular function. And what restriction enzymes do is they cut DNA at very specific points. So the analogy we use often is with language. So a restriction enzyme would be like, you take a book with you know 100,000 words in it, and you find a restriction enzyme that cuts the text, physically cuts the text every time you see the word the, right? So that's a very common word. So if you took a book, and use that particular restriction enzyme, it would shred the book. But equally, there are other restriction enzymes that might cut the words only every time they see the word trousers. And the word trousers doesn't come up very often in my, my work. So if it comes up once or twice in one of my books, it would cut the whole text into two blocks or three blocks. So by finding out what these restriction enzymes do and what bits of DNA they actually target, what it meant was that the first genetic engineers could cut a single gene out. They'd sequenced it, they'd read the sequence of the genetic information in a virus, and they knew that there's a point here and here, you know, the word trousers is in the genetic code of the viruses. So you could apply the restriction enzyme and you go snip snip, and then you've got it.
0: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech?
3: And so what did Paul Berg come up with then? So he did this, what year are we with Paul Berg? 70 something? 72. 72. And so what did he come up with? This was the first time we'd, on a molecular level, interfered with genetics in order to produce something new.
2: Yeah, physically cut one gene from one virus and taken that gene and physically put it into the genome of another virus. That's the first time that happened. Now, thinking about the music analogy, and, and I was thinking about how, well, this is, this is cool because this is effectively what sampling is in music. And the invention of sampling is analogous to genetic engineering because you're not just writing a piece of music which references the stone roses or bark or whatever it is. You're actually physically taking the recording and placing it into another piece of music to create something new. So here's my question to you We're talking 72, but actually, when I started writing this up and doing some of the looking into the history of music, actually, the invention of sampling happens a few years earlier. And I want to see if you can guess who it is.
3: This is one of these bits of knowledge I actually used to know
2: the answer to, but it's completely gone from my head. 72. I found it a little bit annoying because it again demonstrates the brilliance of the band that did this. So it's about five years before that. Maybe it's someone like the Beach Boys, but it's not the Beach Boys. (laughs) It's the Beatles. Which bit of Beatles? It's Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. But on the Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, the middle eight section the chorus fades out, and you suddenly get fairground music, right? So Calliope's, And what George Martin had done had taken physical quarter-inch tape recordings of these Victorian fairgrounds, they cut them up, they threw them around the studio, picked them out, and then inserted those bits of tape into the recording. So the Beatles don't play the middle-eight section on being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. It's actual physical recordings of these fairground music. And that is... The birth of sampling. It annoyed me because it's like you want inventions that change the universe to be by some, you know, esoteric, you know, somebody working away in their basement. But no, it was the biggest band in the universe decided to do something different and fundamentally, probably for about the eighth time, changed the way music was. We keep referring to hip hop without actually explaining why it's a good analogy. So the parallel that I loved was, so I love hip hop and I love sampling in music and I was thinking about this analogy and, you know, came across the Beatles as the originators of physical sampling. And then I was thinking, well, okay, the one musical medium where sampling becomes just the driving force behind it, the creative driving force is hip hop and rap. And being a hip-hop nerd, I was thinking, well, okay, so some of the early progenitors of hip-hop are in the 1970s. This is all happening in the Bronx and Brooklyn at exactly the same time, 1972, 1973. And then Paul Berg actually is from the Bronx, although he was doing this work down in in Stanford. You're going to tell me he was a former member of Public Enemy. Oh, I wish. That would have been so perfect. Alas, not. But DJ Cool Herc was doing these famous, at Brooklyn Heights and and Sedgwick Avenue, doing these famous parties, which are considered by music historians to be the birth of hip-hop, where he's, for the first time, taking the beats from one record and melodies from another and shouting out rhyming lines over the top while the beat boys and girls were body popping and dancing in front of them. And we've got remixing happening in front of you in the first real live time. It's not the first time that two turntables are used in disco scenarios, but it's the first time where you're creating a gestalt piece of music with the beats from one and the tune from another, and he's flipping the discs and switching between them on the crossfaders. And that really is the birth of hip-hop. That's happening in Brooklyn, Paul Berg is from the Bronx, Both happened in 1972, and I thought, this is great. So
3: the analogies: hip-hop, sampling, putting things together, mixing it up, and biology.
2: So where are we with biology? So Paul Berg is doing these experiments, and then other people start doing them where it becomes easier and the technology becomes available. As ever, technology enables progress in these fields, and the same happens in music. So there's the birth of – you don't just have to use the records, the turntables themselves – But pieces of kit like the SP-1200, which is a, you know, changed music, was used by literally everyone in the 1970s and 80s. You could record a bit digitally into this machine and then drop it out however you wanted it. The same thing is happening in biology. We're inventing new techniques to switch bits of genetic information from one organism to another. And they're, they're happening in parallel. Just in terms of biology,
3: this great period of innovation, what did it mean for things in biology? Suddenly we had genetic engineering. What did that lead to? What products did we have in the 1970s and 1980s? One of the interesting
2: things that happens in this story is that the repercussions of Berg's first experiments are that many of the people doing this, which isn't very many, it's like a couple of hundred people around the world, immediately recognise the potential of this. And they do what we now regard as the right thing, which is they called a global moratorium on it, right? They said, right, we're not doing any of this. We're going to meet up in California in a place called Asilomar. Everyone who does this, which is, as I say, about 200 people is going to be there. And we're going to thrash this out. We're going to thrash out the ethics.
3: Because of the potential power of this new tools, they went, holy crap, this could go badly wrong. This could, you know, really change things here.
2: Exactly, because at exactly the same time, people are immediately thinking that this is something that can be weaponized or that can be commercialised, and it was commercialised. And by the way... And of course we think about eugenics as well. Presumably the, that idea is going to raise its head again. Exactly. Applied to humans, applied to weapons, applied to crops, it can be commercialised. You know, this is... They were right. It is the most powerful invention that anyone's come up with in the late 20th century. So tell us about this moratorium. What was decided? I need to give credit where it's due. I've written a lot about this in the past, but the defeat definitive book on this subject is coming out later this year and it's by Matthew Cobb who's one of the great contemporary biology writers and you should seek that out. So I'm borrowing from him in in talking about these things. They all get together and they decide what are the rules going to be? What are the ethical rules of how we should proceed? And one of the things that Matthew talks about very eloquently is that we sometimes champion this meeting as being the scientists pulling down the hatches, putting the brakes on and deciding the sort of cultural context in which this incredibly powerful technology is going to be explored. So that's to be praised. At the same time, it's really a cultural hegemony right in there. You know, no one asked the public. This wasn't democratically done. It was just them taking it on upon themselves. So we should be wary of that. But they design the rules. They say that, you know, you can summarize it with things like you shouldn't eat it, <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't weaponize it. Another interesting thing that comes out of this meeting is the use of the biohazard symbol. So that was determined in this meeting.
3: So they're having this meeting and they're worried about the power of it. But then how do we get from that to okay, genetically modified crops and things like medicines and vaccines and insulin and fish that glow in the dark and mice with all kinds of things happening?
2: They come out of the meeting and they've decided these rules and work then proceeds at a pace. And by 1980, we've got some of the first genetically engineered organisms that have purpose. So not just for experimentation or trying to understand how the basics of biology work, which is a big part of what genetic engineering was for. I'll talk about that in just a sec. But also things like the mouse, for example, which I think is pretty much the first animal that is genetically modified And that is an animal, that's a mouse that has been genetically engineered, so it's ultra-susceptible to cancer. And that makes... Oh, Jesus. Like, who came up with that
3: idea? Someone's like, what are we going to do with a mouse? I know. Well, we could stick an ear on its back, that one.
2: (laughs) And then someone said, no, 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 let's give it... That's awful. Well, it is. I mean, I understand. I understand. It it fundamentally revolutionised our understanding of cancer and so became a lab standard for testing how cancers work. So genetic
3: engineering, at this point, for example, that mouse, this is still very much in the lab. We haven't sort of gone out and and made crops and medicines. I think of things like vaccines, which are obviously genetically modified now. and That comes
2: a bit later, but they're already thinking about commercialising the products. And one of the other characters at the beginning of this called Herbert Boyer, he was the first person to sort of commercialise, well, he performed a company called Genentech, which went on the stock markets and made them, you know, instant bazillionaires. And so there's a sort of gold rush that happens at this time. How can we commercialise this stuff?
3: That's interesting. And were there any rules at this point? I mean, we've had our conference when they talk about the power of it. Was there any kind of rules that said, OK, by law, you cannot do this or you cannot do that? Well,
2: thank you for asking that, because that brings us back to the music analogy very neatly. One of the things that is this true of the history of science and its relationship to the law is that the law moves necessarily slowly and has to move in retrospect, because it has to respond to the possibilities of how science enabled by new technologies. So the scientists invent and the law has to catch up. And it was unclear where these new technologies fit in the relationship with patent and copyright law. And there are technical reasons for this, which are that broadly the American copyright and patent laws were designed in 1790 and 1791. And copyright tends to apply to things that can be performed and patent refers to sort of processes. And so when it comes to biology, you're not allowed to put patent or copyright on naturally occurring things. You know, you can't go out and declare that that tree is yours and you can't make any other trees like that because it's naturally occurring. So at that point you say, well, what is a gene, right? Is that naturally occurring? Well, yes, it is. So you can't patent a gene. But is the extraction of that gene is a process that you can apply potentially you can apply patent or or possibly copyright law too. This was at the same time, incidentally, that electronics is really leading the field here because a, a line of code is like a line of text or a line of music and therefore possibly subject to copyright law. But it's an action as well. There's a line of code which says when I press this button, something will happen on my screen, a letter will come up. So you can patent that because it's a process. Now, The long and the short of this is that those things have never really been resolved, ever. And the only people that got rich off this were the invention of a new breed of lawyer, which are patents and copyright trolls. And their existence was to make sure that we never really resolved these issues at all. And the fact that that continued, continues to this day, and I look at my iPhone just to the left here, they don't have that anymore. But do you remember on the older iterations of the iPhone, there was a, um, a nice slide bar that you'd open it, that little, we've got rid of it now. But there was a point where Apple were trying to patent the elasticity of that button so that, I don't know, Nokia or Samsung couldn't copy it. Now, I can't remember whether they were successful or not in, in that, but again, the only people who benefit from that really are not the users they're the people who are maintaining this is a legal problem. I'm probably going to get sued by Samsung now, aren't I?
3: Give us some examples then of th- everyday things that we take for granted now, which use this technique of genetic engineering, things that we have.
2: Well, not in Europe, but in America, there are no foods that don't have genetically engineered products in them at some point. Most genetically engineered, genetically modified foodstuffs actually go for livestock feed. But because. So even things like, even if it says organic, oh, yeah. then it's still at some point. It's close to meaningless right? To create something that hasn't interacted with specifically genetically modified food stuff in America is a hard thing to do. And it should be pointed out that it is 100% safe. The opposition to genetically modified organisms entering our food chain is not founded in science. We have
3: a psychological aversion to it, or well, some people have an aversion to this idea of GM because they think, oh, it's Frankenstein food and it's playing with nature and we have a an issue with it.
2: It's a hard thing to counteract
3: because it all sort of depends on what do you mean by natural? Well, exactly. That's the thing. It, it's blurry. And presumably, like, all medicine as well is now made in labs. There's no, We don't get insulin from pigs anymore, presumably.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. It used to be grown up in pigs and extracted from so human insulin for diabetics. And now it's all done in cells that have been genetically modified to express that particular protein. And you're right. There's a weird sort of disconnect between... We'd happily eat drugs that make us better or give us immunity to COVID, for example, but at the same time wouldn't eat food that has gone through exactly the same process. And it just sort of reveals our psychological oddities because there's almost no aspect of modern life which isn't touched by genetic engineering.
3: I, think, I guess the thing is it's invisible, so we don't even notice it. You know, we've got other things to think about now, so, that you know, there it is.
2: Yeah, past the framework of our lives. I should qualify that in Europe... None of us, neither me, nor you, nor anyone in Europe has genetically modified foods because that was never passed under EU regulations. And it's just an interesting dichotomy there. In America, they fully embraced it and it's part of their food web and ecosystems. And in Europe, it isn't at all. That may change in the UK now that we're outside of the European Union. We're now no longer subject to those rules. And it's yet to be resolved whether we will start eating genetically modified organisms. And there are many, many good reasons to say that we should.
3: So we've sort of revolutionized food. It's revolutionized medicine. I want to talk about this notion of CRISPR, which is this technology that's relatively recent. What is CRISPR and why has it
2: become such an important tool? The gene editing that we're talking about so far, up until the beginning of the 21st century, hasn't basically changed from the way that Paul Berg was doing it in 1972. You identify the gene that you're interested in. You sequence it. You cut it out from the organism that it originated from. You insert it into a bacteria, something like E. coli, that we know how to grow. You grow it up in cultures in test tubes or on plates so you've got tons of that version of the gene you extract the dna from all of those cells you cut out the bit that you inserted in the first place and then you can muck around with it right then you can insert it into something else just before we go
3: on there's one bit where we've completely missed out in this conversation which is why would you want to you want to genetically modify things in order to have certain traits which are beneficial that's the kind of slightly important bit we missed out. We want food to be more resistant to disease, or we want animals to have no feathers, or whatever it might be.
2: It's a very good point. And it's an extension of what we've been doing for the last 12,000 years, which is through agriculture, breeding organisms to enhance qualities that we want. So none of the foods that we eat are naturally occurring. They've all been manipulated by us in order to enhance things that we want. The You know, sheep and cows and all animals in agriculture have been very carefully bred over thousands of years to be the versions that we want, so they're meaty or milky or produce wool or whatever it is. What changes in the 1970s is that we're no longer constrained by the physical boundaries of sex. We can just bypass the fact that a spider can't have sex with a goat and take the genes that encode spider silk and stick them into a goat so that the goat produces spider silk. That is a thing, by the way. Spider goat, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you for that.
3: CRISPR, this brand new tool. So we've got Paul Berg's, the way that he does it with his enzyme.
2: What does CRISPR do? So it's a slow process. That's the the one that I've just described. It was massively improved over the course of the 80s and and 90s, but still remained this fundamentally difficult thing to do. I did my PhD in 1998 to 2001. And
3: My analogy is that that is kind of like if you're cutting film on a Steenbeck with a razor blade, and suddenly CRISPR is your final cut pro.
2: Kind of, yeah. I think that works well. So it was a slow and you know arduous process. I did it for two years during my PhD, and at the end of the, I actually failed. It didn't. My my entire experiment. I was trying to get a gene from a mouse back into a different type of mouse in order to see if it, I could rescue its blindness, and I couldn't get it to work. Because it's technical and, you know, boring and slow and you've got to grow things and you're reliant on us understanding the genetics of very specific organisms that we have characterised, that we know how they work. In 2010, sort of 12, around about that time, this new tool comes on the scene. It's primarily invented by two scientists called Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, who won the Nobel Prize for this last year. And they borrowed some naturally occurring biology from bacteria, which has evolved to cut out viruses from genomes to to act as part of the immune system for bacteria. They borrowed it and redesigned it and worked out that you could use this system. It's formerly called CRISPR-Cas9. Basically, what it allows you to do is to take a bit of DNA. I'll use the word analogy. Take the word trousers in a text and you design this little sort of molecular cassette, which will find that word and only that word in the whole genome of whatever you're looking at. And then you stick it in there and it'll cut it out and replace it with whatever you want. And why is that better and faster than Paul Berg's method? It's very accurate, although not 100% accurate. And we're discovering it comes with a bunch of problems. But That's later in the story. It's very accurate. It's very easy to do, very quick. And you can do it in any organism. So almost instantaneously in the last 10 years, we just invented a new tool, which makes the whole process of genetic engineering a thousand times faster and easier than it was before. And the example I give is that that project that I did in my PhD, which took two years and failed, a summer student, so an undergraduate, went to the same lab about two years ago before lockdown and did my, basically did my entire PhD in about six weeks. That's really annoying. The scientist in me says, well, great, that's progress. And they've answered those questions. And the human part of me goes, that's just annoying. (laughs) Yeah, progress is terrible. (laughs) Damn progress.
3: Tell us how CRISPR, though, just paint a picture of us, you know, just the power of CRISPR in terms of what it's going to do for us over the next
2: decade. How is it going to revolutionize things? Already has done. It's made genetic engineering so easy for so many people that there's no point in using the old school mechanisms for genetic engineering for doing whatever it was you were doing before, you know, insulin or making a COVID vaccine. You just CRISPR it instead because it's going to be more accurate. It's going to be more quicker. You've just taken, you know, a huge number of working hours out of that process.
3: Is it going to profoundly change life on Earth, do you think? I mean, you say that everything that we eat is already genetically modified to some extent.
2: Is CRISPR just going to, you know, change everything? Well, I'm very cautious of being a hype merchant in science because new technologies are invented, they're billed as being revolutionary, and then they turn out not to be or they turn out to have problems with them and there's qualifications to them. There's a thing called the hype curve, which is a graph which shows how this happens in society where there's a huge very steep upwards trajectory where people go they discover the new technology and they go this is going to revolutionize absolutely everything and everything is going to be completely brilliant from now on and it hits a peak the sort of peak of expectation and then people realize that actually it's really complicated and we can't deploy it in the way that we thought or it screws up other things and CRISPR's case it turns out it's not quite as precise as we had once thought. So it does other edits away from the word trousers, and that on the hype curve, it, there's a sudden plummet to the trough of reality, and then. So we don't really know is the answer. Then it, it climbs up a little bit, and you get to what is referred to as the plateau of productivity. And I think we're on the plateau of productivity for CRISPR now. It's already being deployed. So it was very hyped, and you think it's sort of was slightly it's slightly been calmed down. Yes, well, I think that what we're finding out is that it's. All the things I was saying at the beginning, like it's incredibly precise and targets very, very accurately bits of DNA, turn out to need some caveating. Turns out that it, it's not quite, you know, it doesn't just do the word trouser in a whole book. It does a bunch of stuff as well. Are you a sort of optimist, though? Are you quite optimistic about
3: things or are you pessimistic?
2: Yes, I, I, I am. But I think that I'm optimistic but if we take the time to understand what the problems are. Yeah. Like in
3: your new book, for example, you know, you mentioned there was a case where a scientist had genetically engineered a, a fetus to be resistant to HIV. There was a big hoo-ha about that. There was a big t- debate about that. It's, it seems like that the stories like that, they've kind of crossed a line that we're not ready to, to cross yet.
2: So I start the book with this story, actually, because in 2018, in uh, November 2018, I woke up and checked my phone and I had 33 missed messages, and that doesn't happen. And they were, fr- they were all from the media, asking about this reveal that had happened in um, Hong Kong overnight. And it was at a conference, a reproductive biology conference, where people I know, many of my colleagues and some friends were there. And this guy called Hei Zhang Kui, who is a, well a physicist really, more than anything, in China, Had presented, had announced and presented the birth of two baby girls whose pseudonyms were Lulu and Nana, who had, via the process of IVF with two parents, the father of whom was HIV positive, had taken the fertilized embryos via this IVF process and CRISPRed them, applied CRISPR to them with the intention of modifying one particular gene, which is called CCR5, modifying it to the version which is naturally occurring in about 1% of people and it makes them immune to HIV infection. So he was trying to give these girls immunity from the disease that their father has. You think, well, there is a noble aim in there, there's a good intention in there, but there's lots of qualifications to this which make this not noble at all, both immoral and illegal, in fact. The first thing is that he presented this data And it showed that, he showed, that he had been unsuccessful in making the edits that are the same as the natural immunity to HIV. The CRISPR hadn't worked. And instead, one of them had a sort of partial deletion of this bit of the gene, CCR5, and another had another insertion somewhere else. Now, you might think at that point that this already ethically dubious experiment, you might shut it down at that point but they didn't do that. He implanted the two eggs, and what he was reporting was that earlier that year the two baby girls had been born. Now, this is shocking. I mean, it's truly shocking. Was it shocking because no, he'd,
3: it was done in secret or done without the consultation of others? Or...
2: It is illegal, so it's illegal on many different dimensions, but it also violates widely codified and widely held guides it emerged out of the discovery of the Holocaust, the experimentation on predominantly Jewish people by people like Joseph Mengele and others and Paul Brand during the Nazi era. What came out of the Nuremberg trials and particularly the Doctors' Trial, which was the second round of the Nuremberg trials where they addressed the euthanasia and eugenics policies of the Nazis, is codes that scientists would adhere to. They're revised in the 1970s, I think it's the 70s, with the Helsinki Declaration. But they include things like human experimentation is something we've taken very seriously and cannot be basically outlawed. And what Hei Zhang Kui did violates that because this was a prophylactic, right? This was a... He was giving them a sort of DNA lifelong or attempting to give them a DNA lifelong condom for a disease that most people don't get that we have very well tested and well understood interventions which prevent people from getting them which are behavioral which we are developing immune you know drugs for and we can treat he wasn't treating a disease it wasn't therapeutic it was experimental because he was trying to give them immunity to something that they didn't have so that means it's a human experimentation did those girls give consent for that well of course they didn't because they were single-celled embryos so it violates the most basic tenets that we have in human biology the fact that he inserted and grew the embryos up knowing that the genetic edit that he had attempted had failed makes it just even worse so these girls have mutations in this one gene which are unknown to both nature and science. It's a good
3: example of the tension that still lingers over the the kind of future of all
2: of this and our anxiety. Well, one of the things that I think is very interesting about it, it's a woeful, terrible, uh, shameful episode in the history of science. And it was universally condemned. I think if there is one positive that comes out of this otherwise hideous story, it is that there was... Almost instantaneous, universal condemnation of what he had done—that to apply genetic engineering techniques such as CRISPR to try and engineer in a non-therapeutic way—it violates the law. It violates almost all of our bioethical principles, and it was a heinous crime. He was sent to prison. He's currently in prison in China, we think, and was fined. I think it was three million yuan. Interestingly, when it was first released, the Chinese press lauded it as a major breakthrough. And those headlines are no longer available. They lasted a few hours before they were replaced with universal condemnation. So, if anything, it has exposed what is possible, what is not easy, but the technology is there. I mean, bear in mind that he did fail to do what he intended to do. But it put a landmark in the sand which said this is the type of thing that is now possible to do. Now, we know that there is a third child, but we know not, almost nothing more about him or her. I would be very unsurprised if other people are not doing this in other places where regulation is, regulation standards are different from the ones that we hold very dear in the UK, which are necessarily stringent and restrictive. But it shows that we are at a point where the ideas of genetic engineering that have been around for well thousands of years if you include agriculture hundreds of years if you include the principles behind eugenics decades if you include the actual era of genetic engineering we are now in an era where those types of things are available to everyone and we must be vigilant
3: I think that's a very good place to pause Adam thank you very very much indeed for joining us on the show just very quickly your book is out control the dark history and troubling present of eugenics that's right. Of which this story is in, so people can read a little bit more
2: about this. Yes, Great. it is. It is. It starts with this story, and, and I, I talk about the whole history of birth control and genetic engineering, and it's all part of not a cheerful book, but I think it's an important one. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Always a pleasure talking to you, Dallas. A
3: pleasure. Okay, that's all for today. Thank you very much for listening. Now, if you have an invention that you would like to know the story behind, let me know. You can find me on Twitter. And the clips in today's episode came from archive.org, including The Gene Engineers by WGBH and the film Fed Up by WholesomeGoodness.org. We've got episodes coming up on the history of the spacesuit, condoms, tanks and even the ear trumpet. Now, if any of that sounds up your street, subscribe or follow wherever you are listening now. I'll be back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes.
0: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.
3: While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive